This week on The Futurist. If you'd gone back to pagan villages, you'd have seen exactly the same in terms of who was given more freedom, who was asked to be involved in more decision-making. It's basic human nature, but we forget it. And I think it's those very human attributes that are going to help us succeed most in a very tech-centric world. And so the leaders are, in a world before we've got complete artificial general intelligence replacing all of us in everything, in a world where we still have humans, it is going to be those who know how to work in a human environment best Welcome to The Futurists. Hey, Brett, you know, we've been having these conversations now for a long time with different people who are thinking about the future, the kind of people I call future-minded. And we've learned some interesting things. You know, you can learn a lot from a science fiction author or a a biologist. Um, But I think one of the things that keeps coming up is people want to know what to do with the future. How do we make a practical use of the future? And so for some time, I've been thinking it'd be great for us to have a conversation with a practical futurist, someone actually uses a, a future future forecasting methodology for practical purposes, uh, like a pragmatic approach to futurism. And I can think of nobody better than Rohit Talwar. Rohit is world famous. You know him, you've met him, you've worked with him in the past. Um, but he's famous around yeah. the world because he is so prolific, not just with forecasting, but with analysis and ways to think about it. And he's written a number of books. He gives many, many public speeches uh, all over the world. And he's the CEO of Fast Future. So, so welcome to the show, Rohit. It's great to have you here today. Great, great to have you on, man. Thank you for having me, guys. We, we're going to get tactical today, I think. <laughs> yeah, so. I, I'm. I'm really curious about this idea of practical futurism. Uh, you know, when you're engaged by a company, tell me about that process. What are they seeking to accomplish by bringing you in? Well, generally, people bring me in because they want to have a conversation about the future. About half the time, it's because they've seen me having a conversation about the future elsewhere, and they want to bring some of that conversation back in. So whether it's the ideas we're talking about of how things can come together, what does the world look like when people are giving their money intelligence and authorizing their money to keep swapping itself from interest uh, from a bank account to bank account all day long in order to find the best interest rate. They, they love having their mind blown by those kinds of ideas. But then they're they're into that thing of, well, how do we then bring it back into our organization, get that kind of thinking to inspire us to change what we do today, identify the risks that look a bit ugly that we'd rather not deal with till they manifest, or to go after the opportunities that are out there that could be even scarier because they require us to think differently, behave differently, learn new things, work with different people, and have very different business models. And so they want someone who can help them with that process, both the methodology for exploring the future, identifying the insights, opportunities, and risks, but also that practical piece of translating it back into the organization and making sure that the organization doesn't reject it. The body language, the DNA of the organization doesn't reject any of those ideas of change because they're they're too shocking or they're, they're too challenging to the way things are or the way things work. Now, now, Rohit, you know, when we look over the the last 
you know, 300 years, uh, maybe 200 years more, more, uh, more measurably in terms of impact of changes to certain industries. We've got a whole swathe of, you know, use cases and examples of industries that have failed to adapt to the future, you know, when it's staring them in the face, you know, borders, blockbuster, you know, et cetera. Um, so, what is it that makes an organization from a cultural perspective future-proof, do you think? Really, really interesting question. And I, I don't think there's one thing. Often people believe that the fish rots from the head. And so it's often kind of a, a finger pointing at the president, the CEO, whoever ultimately uh, makes the big decisions. And I think they have a lot to do with it, their style of dealing with threatening information. Do they see it as something to be understood, to learn about? Do they see it as something to uh, tap into, to take advantage of? Or do they see it as something to, to pretend it didn't happen because acknowledging it is an existential threat there? And uh, funnily enough, I was with a group of people who still publish Yellow Pages. I was with them on Monday. Crazy. Uh, in Mallorca. And I remember doing work with Yellow Pages a good 30 years ago when the conversation at the time was, how do we stop our customers from using the internet? Right, right. And how did that work out for them? Yeah. <laughs> and the conversation this time was, how do we convince our customers that using the search engine really isn't as good as coming to our <laughs> online version of a book? And actually, there are some reasons why there are, but there's something about the mindset that doesn't change, whatever the technology. And in and the meantime, the, the yellow pages have shrunk from probably 1,200 pages down to 200 or something, right? Well, the online versions have grown, but apparently in Greece, they still have one physical copy somewhere in the country. But these businesses are phenomenally profitable. So there's also that challenge that when you're doing really well, Someone telling right, you right. fire coming can be really hard to acknowledge. If you told the mayor of London, uh, you know, in 1939 that a blitz was coming and most of London would have been obliterated, what would he have done? Like it would have just been bigger than a brain fall. And I think that's some of the challenge that you couldn't move London at the time. And the same thing for organisations. It's can't... like the resistance to changing fossil fuels, or um, you know those those sorts of issues. It, it's, there's so much momentum and inertia yeah. behind that idea that even though it can be done, um, you know you've got to change so many parts of the system to to make it work. Even though you know renewables are significantly cheaper and we're solving the storage problems and all of that. That's a yeah. There's uh, there's a lot of that that we see around us. You've experienced that with banks, Brett, and I've experienced it with auto companies. You know, the, the people who are successful in those companies are there because they understand how those things right, work right. and they've contributed to the success of the business. So you know, they're kind of doubling down on the past. They're the least likely people to be open-minded about switching. Yeah. So Rohit, what I'm hearing you say is that if you're going to be a practical futurist, you've got to have a combination of skills. Certainly you need to understand technology. You need to understand the economics and what drives a business. But you also need to be a kind of psychologist or a salesperson um, because part of the job is to persuade people to open their minds. Talk about the psychology of futurism for us. So that, that's a really interesting one. There, there is a school of futurism that says you don't worry or future thinking that says you don't worry about any of that. Your job is just to tell people what's shaping the future and then to take a very sort of dirigiste approach to say this will happen and this is what it will mean to you. Uh, and largely they're wrong. 
because nothing will happen exactly as we think. And, and we can never be sure what the second, third or fourth order effects are. And we can't be sure how organisations will respond. So I tend to panic a bit when people stand up and say, this is what's going to happen and this is what you should do. I think we get the, the whole value of the future is about getting people to think flexibly about a range of scenarios. You can't take them there in one go. So we did, literally just before talking to you guys, though, we've been designing a session where we're going to send people out for the next six weeks to make little videos of what they see changing in the world, how technology is changing, whatever. So they're immersing themselves. That's a cool idea, dude. They're, they're having little conversations then once a week with their colleagues about a topic of their choice where they're not allowed to do more than 10 minutes of research, but they're going to come back and just chat about what they're learning. So when they come into the room, they've already started to engage with the future. And you've dealt with a lot of the issues then about it won't change, it won't change, this will change. But you've also got them thinking then about what does this mean for me? And hopefully you've already shown them that self-directed learning, self-managed learning is the way forward, because that's the only way we can navigate the future is if we take control of our own destiny. No one cares more about my future than I do. So I can't, I can't outsource responsibility for my future. And we've got to get people to understand that and get everyone learning. You can't just have your futurist do it for you. But what your futurist can do is help you explore these things, connect ideas in ways that you wouldn't have imagined, that start to say, okay, if on the one side we've got AI that uh, is starting to interpret our emotions, on the other hand, we've got people who are incredibly socially awkward uh, but want a partner, well, could they trust AI to do everything for them, take away the dating app and just arrange for them to meet someone because we've taken all that away? And the AIs have spoken to each other, so they've kind of guaranteed that your compatibility and therefore, all the risk has been taken out of you because it's done by the tech in which you trust. So you start to blow people's minds with these possibilities. And then you get them having those ideas. You get them being creative, matching one trend to another, one idea to a development, and starting to see what's possible. And normally, it comes down to pain or pleasure. It comes down to how do we solve something that's currently causing us pain, or how do we create a new source of pleasure in the world? And if those two kind of basically the root of most ideas that we have and then it's about bringing them back into the organization creating a conversation about the data that we used to inform the storytelling and then assessing our current strategy against the scenarios and then working out what new ideas and opportunities come out of that so it's a process you step people through you give them worked examples you give them guidance on the kind of language to use you stop them writing directional statements to say this will happen but you get them into this practice and it is a practice of having open and flexible dialogues and then you make sure that well two things one is you make sure that you don't have a senior person walk into the room afterwards and say and now back to the real world well now <laughs> it's practical which kind of does happen and the second is you make sure that there is something happening within the next 48 to 72 hours allowing for weekends where they are going to be asked to use the outcomes or the insights from that session in something tangible in their job. So you connect it back to what they're doing. And then you have check-ins. So you, you don't have this half day, day, two days of exploring the future as being some random thing that happened. And then you get on with banging out the numbers. You actually use it to inform everything they do. So if they're writing a plan, you say, well, okay, how does that fit against the three scenarios we, we talked about for our marketplace? Where is it valid? Where is it invalid? 
what are the things we would do under any of those scenarios and what are the things we only do under certain scenarios. And so you, you force them to, to use it. And the more they use it, the more it becomes a standard tool in their thinking. So it's a series think, of conversations, right? You're not talking about a single engagement. It's not like a single lecture here. This is more like consulting, uh, where you're working with individuals yeah. and groups. But it could be, I mean, it could be that you're doing this in a day, but what you're making sure you leave them with is the support mechanism inside the organization to keep using it. You, you don't want to so, just fly in like, you know, like a seagull, drop on them and go. You, you want to leave them in a better shape than you found them with more skills, more tools, more processes, to make the future useful. So, so Rohit, one of the tendencies we have when we, when you know, we look at something like artificial intelligence, which you just used an example uh, of there, um, you know, to many people, it's an abstraction. Um, even though AI is having, you know, an automation is already taking jobs out of the system, which people don't generally see. But, um, you know, if you take an example of AI or many of these future scenarios um, you, you're talking about, one of the key problems is unless it's actually happening in front of people right there and then, it tends to be something that might happen in the future. Um, and so we debate whether or not AI is going to impact employment, for example, instead of what we should be doing is really focusing on how we transition to that future state. Because we, you know, as futurists, obviously we embrace the fact that it's it's going to happen. So how do you bridge that sort of gap in terms of the you know, where the future is too far away for people to see it impacting their daily lives or their business versus you know un, as a futurist understanding the trends that make that largely inevitable you know in 250 years of technology disruption we've not seen a single industry ever defend itself against technology so we know what the uh, the, the typical uh, you know success of this stuff is but how do you get people into that mindset instead of debating whether or not this is going to happen in terms of accepting that it is a possibility and then talking about how to how to adapt so a lot of it is around the language we use. We like to use quite violent language. The, this will happen. This will destroy you. The, the fear principle drives a lot of the conversation. This will happen. This will wreck you, so you've got to act. Uh, a few people are excited by the possibility. But as you say, there's a, there's a big gap between where we are now and this thing. Some people can make the leap. They can go, okay, it's one, two, three steps from here, and we have to do A to get to B to get to C. But most can't. So then you have to inevitably you have to water down the future a bit you have to bring it back to some examples of what's going on now um and this idea that the future is unevenly distributed so what we might think is five years away someone else is almost inevitably doing so you use those examples to show what's going on and you try to get people out of the natural defense mechanism which is finding a way of rubbishing what the other company is doing or why their circumstances are different or they're a startup or they're in xyz country or they have a better regulator or whatever uh, and you try and get them past all that and say let's just look at what they're doing what if you were able to do this what would that make possible for us if we could get over those hurdles what could we do and it's getting them to sort of stand on the other side imagine you're the innovator why would you have done this what would it Great. Now imagine you were starting us again and this was available to you. How would you use it? So you have to find lots of different, well, you try lots of different routes in to get them to engage with the idea. And with 
I'd say 90% of the people, it has to be with examples that are happening here and now. Right. It's 10% that you can take. That, that illustrate to them the changes that are happening. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, 2022 started off as a, a, a pretty disruptive year in history. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you take uh, you take crypto into the the case, um, you know, actually uh, Brock Pierce was pointing out that w- this, this is a bigger crash than the dot-com crash if you account for uh, the shift in crypto, um, which is sort of an interesting perspective. But obviously, you know, um, 2022 in terms of the difficulties from the Russia-Ukraine situation, um, you know, that's just uh, emphasized issues we've had with supply chain difficulties that came from, um, you know, the uneven employment issues during the pandemic and so forth. So, um, you know, put your futurist hat on today and and play out where, you know, where we're at 20, in 2022 today and some of these issues um, that, you know, we may not have anticipated, you know, say five, 10 years ago. How are they going to shape the future uh, over the next decade or so? So for me, uh what you're really seeing is is the the first really solid evidence that a lot of our governing and enabling systems are running out. So a lot of our systems were built late 40s onwards, late 40s to early 80s. Our healthcare systems, our education systems, our governing systems, our financial markets management systems, the structure of corporations today still look pretty similar in many regards they did in the 1940s. And we're discovering all of those are running out, whether it's because you've got more players, more people wanting to have a say, whether it's because of technology, innovators coming in and saying, I don't have to play by your rules. What we're seeing is is that's what's happening. So the pandemic really demonstrated that our our model of running healthcare was broken, whether you were a a free point of service or paid model. The, The way in which resources were allocated and things were prioritized just wasn't designed to deal with a pandemic. And whenever anyone did scenarios for a pandemic, most people failed in their pandemic preparedness exercises because- Yeah, we had all these things mapped out for strategies and they were ignored. Financial markets, what's great is, uh, I think what's happened in crypto has been a fantastic exercise in testing whether the market manipulation strategies that we've used in equities, in derivatives, in commodities can be used in crypto. And- you know, the experiments work. You'd see it all the time. This has got nothing to do with people's perception of the underlying value of a, a digital uh, you know, asset ecosystem or blockchain technology or trustless-based uh, models or any of that. None of that has been disproved. There's, there's still kind of an absolute belief. The number of users is going up. Uh, more and more companies getting involved. What it's demonstrated, though, is that the power brokers who thought that they might be losing control, they've been able to see that with relatively small amounts of money, they can do untold, you know, unimaginable things to the crypto market, which would cost them a lot more to do in the equities market or in the Yeah, thanks, BlackRock. Well, exactly. Um, And uh, you could say that I couldn't possibly. But, you know, and so I think this is what we're learning. And then the geopolitics thing is interesting. So... There are so many levels to this, but what we're seeing is there were ways in which we dealt with conflicts before. Uh, we used proxies, and now we're playing out yet another proxy war. But in this case, one of them is actually involved. <laughs> They're not using a surrogate. Uh, one of them is actually playing. And so we're changing that game again of how you deal with big geopolitical tensions. 
we're seeing some institutions being strengthened, some being sidelined, and some trying to work out their place in the world. So what we're seeing now, I just think is, at one level, it's, an, it's a disaster. Obviously, the fall in crypto prices, the fall in stock markets, grain shortages, energy crises, geopolitical tensions. But at another level, my macro perspective, it's like, thank God it's happening, right? Because we need this stuff to happen. We need some of these old systems to be pushed to the point where they break. None of us are willing to break them beforehand and start again. Yeah, We're not designed that way. So we need some of these things to fall over. And then we're going to have to accept that there's going to be maybe 10 to 50 years of creating the next solutions. But we need that because we can't keep trying to run these old world institutions using some of the new world ideas and solutions, but with old world assumptions underpinning them. So we, all of that needs to change. That's a great topic for round two after we take a break. The, the, this notion that some of these old institutions need to fall over. What's remarkable about the pandemic, but also the crisis in the Ukraine, is the speed of the response. You would not have expected a response as fast as we got. You know, in the past, it took four years to develop a vaccine. Here we developed the uh, vaccine in about a year. And based on technology, they've been in development for 10 years. But nevertheless, and that was a really rapid rollout of a global vaccine program. And in, in respect to the war in the Ukraine, uh, the global response to that has been very quick as well. I think surprisingly, I think it caught the Russians off guard. Um, but let's save that for after the break. So um, I agree. Yeah, let this me has take been a us lively to break. conversation. Great. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, uh, Rohit. We're talking to Rohit Tawa. He's uh, a global futurist from Fast Future, and we'll be right back after this break. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. You're listening to The Futurists with Robert Tershek and Brett King. And this week, we're interviewing Rohit Talwa, a global futurist from Fast Future. Um, and uh, Rohit, great to have you on the show. Um, you know, before the break, we were talking about, uh, you know, some of the elements of how, um, you know, the, the, the black swan events of the pandemic and the Ukraine war have affected, uh, you know, future forecasting. But, um, you know, uh, in, in terms of, um, you know, before we, we sort of dive back into leadership and, and things like that, what excites you the most about the future? There's a few things. One is uh, we were talking offline in the break that we've seen some incredibly rapid responses. We've seen how we can mobilise people in, in incredible ways. Here in the UK, we had three quarters of a million people volunteer to help out during the pandemic, organised very easily. We had the development of the vaccine at breakneck speed. And obviously, it was building on platforms and science that was already there, but it was still incredible. We had a level of scientific sharing that I don't think we've seen in many cases in the past. So we've seen a lot of good indicators that human ingenuity, passion, and a, a commitment to a common goal can get us a long way uh, very quickly. We've seen a very interesting response of certain parts of the world now to Ukraine and, and the situation with Russia. 
Uh, we've also seen some of the old tenets being challenged. Everyone assumed that Russia would roll over Ukraine in seven days. And actually, 80, 90 days in, they're not really, it's not really clear that they've done anything other than lose a lot of their soldiers and a lot of their hardware and, and a lot of their reputation. Um, so we, we've seen that, that some of the old assumptions are now being challenged in a positive way. We're seeing space being created for innovators. Uh, what I'm most encouraged by is the people working at the, at the margins to try and change things across society. So moving to a more sustainable culture. One of the, the businesses I love uh, is called Elvis and Cresta. They make handbags. Um, they started by watching people throwing stuff away at rubbish tips, and they discovered the UK Fire Service throws away 70 tonnes of unrepairable fire hose every year and pays 400 plus pounds a year per, per tonne to throw it away. These guys investigated and discovered that high-end handbags are made of the same material. So they now take that material for the next 20 years, the contract is. They don't pay a penny for it. They turn it into high-end handbags and give 50% of the profits back to the UK Fire Service charity. To me, that is just That's an fantastic. incredible model. Yeah. Um, and, and we're seeing lots of those examples, and, and they're really inspiring. And that's what I think is, is great, is when we take our eye off the big government moves and big business moves, which can be a little frustrating at times because they're slow, and you watch what some of the, the, the smaller, more nimble players are doing, you see them moving mountains, literally overturning hundreds of years of assumptions, behaviours to, to make something happen. And you're seeing this breed of people emerge who are, I don't know what the right word is, but they're catalysts. They're able to bring a whole range of people together in different ways and find solutions that solve everyone's problems. You're a, you're a healthcare commissioner. You're a mental health practitioner. You're an advocate for patients. You're a district nurse. You're a GP practice. All of you have got these issues about this poor mental health patient who's not getting what they need. And there's a bit of technology over here that could absolutely do it for them, uh, that would support them and get them the resources they need when they need them. But no one knows how to commission it because it doesn't fit within the existing framework. But if you can step in, you can facilitate that conversation, then everyone's happy. It turns out we save money and we get the outcomes that we're all being measured on. And most importantly, the beneficiary has a far better experience and actually gets some help. And so it's those social catalysts, social engineers, who I think are the the real you know the the real fuel for the next the next wave. And what I love about that is a lot of these people are, are the ones who don't know it's not possible. They're 22, 25. They, they've never been in that situation before. They're not blessed by a whole group of people around them telling them why it can't be done or why we tried it before and it didn't work. They're just going in there, driven by a passion. And I think you know, passion is back in fashion. And and Allowing those people to just have their heads, doesn't matter if something breaks. The world is not going to end. But I'm much more inspired by them than I am by my generation, tied up as we are with all our angst about what we didn't get right and you know all the things we know that stop things happening. I think, the, for me, the future is going to be facilitated by these people. It might be paid for by other people. and <laughs> Obviously, we have to influence a lot of people, but it's, it's that core of people across the planet who are almost limbically connected. <laughs> and the agency they have now to make change is just truly inspiring. Not just Greta Thunberg, but there's a, you know, a million Greta Thunbergs out there doing incredible things. So what you're talking about right now, to me, is um, a new definition of leadership or a new kind of leadership. 
And, and I'd start with this observation, Rohit, that we haven't had very inspiring leadership politically in any country I can think of for the last 30 years. Uh, in fact, we've got a political class, it seems, in the Western democracies that's conditioned to pay attention to polls, and they're very cautious. And now they're very concerned about their base of voters, uh, and they kind of tune out everybody else. And so what you have is this kind of um, uh, inertia in the political environment, and as a result, relatively poor leadership. It's uh, it's not even consensus. It's basically uh, certainly they, poor policy making. Yeah, yeah, and they're and they're slow. They're slow to make policy, and they're often slow to to respond. There, of course, there's exceptions to that, but at the same time, there's another group uh, emerging. Uh, they're often entrepreneurial minded, but they're often informed by technology, and these are people who have conviction. What I notice is that they are they are motivated by a rock solid belief in what they believe is going to happen next. It often comes from first principles. So they may be scientifically grounded in their reasoning where they work it out and they say, this is the way it has to happen. One example is, is uh, Dr. Jacobs who created Qualcomm. This is a long time ago, right? This is back in the 1980s, 1990s. But at the time, the conventional wisdom in mobile was that CDMA couldn't possibly work. Uh, there were no There was no way there were microprocessors fast enough in a phone to, to process code division. Um, and the entire GSM world, you know, all the European tech companies and Motorola in the US were against him and they tried everything they could to stop it. And he hung in there because he had the conviction that mathematically speaking, like speaking from physics, this is the right way to do mobile telecommunications. Well, of course he prevailed. It took, uh, it took decades, but eventually he prevailed. And we see examples of that all over. You know, for instance, you mentioned the Moderna va uh, vaccine for the COVID-19 problem. Uh, you know, that was 10 years in the making. And the people at Moderna had this conviction that there was a way to engineer a vaccine. This is a radical rather than, you know, breed it or crossbreed it uh, in the conventional way. That took them many years. And frankly, there were many years in the, in the wilderness for them, right? They had to go against uh, conventional wisdom there as well. And so we're starting to see something emerge, I think is very exciting. It's not limited to the US, it's not limited to the Western countries. There's a global phenomenon of leadership driven by conviction. And like you said, passion, right? It's not just the conviction that they're right, but this passionate commitment to make this change and they won't take no for an answer. And finally, there's financing for that. There's, in, there's venture capital that will back that up. So if they're right and they pass the due diligence process for the first time, we now have adequate amounts, huge amounts of venture capital to deploy to support a disruptive idea like that. Talk to me about how you work with leaders, because when you're working with companies, many of the places you deal with, those leaders aren't cut from that cloth. Those leaders are cut from the kind of conventional thinking um, and maybe a little bit more concerned about preserving the past at the expense of the future. I think it varies quite a lot. And I think by almost it's a self-selecting group, maybe that a lot of the people who bring you in already have an interest in the future or you've resonated with something that there was a story in their head about we're not looking over here enough. So you, you, you were timely. And so a lot of the leaders we tend to work with are ones who do want to make something happen. Mm -hmm. Don't necessarily have all the tools. They don't necessarily understand all that they need to change about themselves to make it happen, but they, they, they are in the game in a sense. Um, those who don't, it, it's very hard to convince them because it's not just around the future that they have a blockage they'll have the same thing in every part of their lives, whether it's buying a new suit, moving the chair in the bedroom, closing down a division of their business or launching a new product. They'll, they'll behave in exactly the same way. So sometimes you just have to accept that 
this is an issue that's deep in their psyche. They're not wrong. It's just how they are. And if they want to change that, then they've got to do some fundamental work. And I talk more and more to people now about doing the work. So going and finding someone to work with with processes that help you deal with those blockages to help you improve your response, help you change your language, because it turns out that everything you say comes across as negative. How do we get you to use nonviolent communication? How do we look at your personal brand? Uh, what is it you'd like to be known for? What are the characteristics you'd like people to ascribe to you versus how do you show up? And so a lot of that situational leadership comes from how you how you come across in meetings. And now we're finding that uh, I've just been on a call with a client um, now, and it's someone from their people and culture piece who I think is the most incredible leader in the organization just because of the way she shows that she listens the way she always demonstrates that she's taken on board what someone has just said and she's made space for them and is not driving home her point. And just this, this sort of passion for what we can make possible, this celebration of the good that people are doing. And it's a way that she builds trust. And the more trust she gets, the more opportunity she creates. Mm-hmm. None of this is new. If you'd gone back to pagan villages, you'd have seen exactly the same in terms of who was given more freedom, who was asked to be involved in more decision-making. It's basic human nature, but we forget it. And I think it's those very human attributes that are going to help us succeed most in a very tech-centric world. And so the leaders are, in a world before we've got complete artificial general intelligence replacing all of us in everything, in a world where we still have humans, it is going to be those who know how to work in a human environment best and get the best out of people that are going to work well. It's not the same. So if I'm in a large financial services institution with 20,000 staff, a lot of my stuff is about rah-rah, keep the messages simple, motivate them. If I'm in a deep, techie, nerdy science lab and we're trying to reinvent life sciences, okay, have some fun with this. But how you motivate me is letting me work on cool science, is letting me go over to MIT and talk to one of the leaders in my field for a week. It's clearing the blockages that procurement or HR won't let me buy this thing I want. That's leadership for them. It's very different, but it's still very motivational. But as a leader, I value what you bring to this organization. I'm going to do everything I possibly can to help you fulfill your potential. You know, Rohit, what what I'm hearing you say, which is super interesting because this is not at all where we started this conversation, But what I'm hearing you say is that even in this time where we're thinking about artificial intelligence and machine intelligence and machine learning, there's a huge need for leaders to have emotional intelligence, particularly if they're dealing with people who have an ego and people who have drive and passion and so forth, how to find a way to communicate with them that recognizes that drive, uh, honors it, respects it, and rewards it. And so um, you're reminding me, your comments are reminding me of something that uh, Randy Komisar, the the, uh, entrepreneur in VC, once said to me a long time ago. He said, what I look for in companies, in leadership in companies, is empathy and self-awareness. They're the two traits that are the most scarce in business. And of them, self-awareness is the most scarce. Now, this is a super interesting notion, right? Like you talk about the legacy as a motivation for a CEO. Uh, you know, what do you want to leave behind? What do you want to accomplish? We see great ego strength in CEOs, right? You have to have great ego strength if you're going to manage a big organization, um, but I'm not sure if we see that much self-awareness. So it sounds to me that part of your mission is to work with that psychology and to help develop some awareness. 
Well, it's interesting because people ask me, so what do I do to stay grounded? How is it that I don't get into a fight in a room where everyone's trying to provoke me and you know people are shouting and pointing a finger because I happen to have bought in the future? And my view is, well, I've found ways in meetings to just drop into myself. Like, because I've learned meditation techniques, I've spent my time at the Buddhist temples, I've learned how to, in that moment, just go inwards, ground, listen to what I really think has been heard, said, and then come back in a way that doesn't take the legs away from any of us. Most of us aren't trained to do that. And I'm impressed that you know about nonviolent communication because we don't often hear about that in the workplace. Usually that's thought of as a relationship thing. Um, but you know, th- this points to this need to build consensus. Uh, you know, too much of what happens in media right now is to pit one group against another. That's great drama. So it rivets people. It's exciting. It sells newspapers. It gets people to watch TV news. Um, but unfortunately, what it doesn't do is create any kind of consensus or any kind of agreement, even on the facts, let alone the solution or what we ought to do next. So in some ways, it sounds like you've developed a t- technique for working with people that that defuses that polarization and helps them find the commonality and helps them find empathy. So uh, one of the things, it's taken me a long time to realize this, is the future itself, as presented, is a threat. The last thing you want is the messenger to also be seen as a threat, as the person facilitating to be seen to have another agenda other than the greater good of the organization and the people in the room. So the, the challenge is always to show people that you're coming from that place. You have no axe to grind. You have no stake in the game in wanting you to go in one direction or another. So, uh, you know, one of my favorite slides that I use at the moment is six race is the six tracks on a race lane. In a you know for a athletics track, the six lanes, and that's the first response I say to people. That the first and very legitimate response you can have to this is to do nothing. Stay in your lane. If you think that what you're doing is going to work, your sense of your market, your sense of the opportunities is such that you can carry on, then that's what you should do. Don't cause yourself stress and an ulcer by trying to do something you're not genetically geared up for. However, if you think there are there is a possibility that you might want to learn, then here are some steps to take. So you have to start where people are coming from and then acknowledge that they're not bad if they don't do anything take out their fight element as as soon as you can take out the fight element open up the window that lets the future in and then allow them to breathe allow them to have the conversations about what they like about this what they dislike about this what they're scared about with with workshops and things the the pressure is on particularly the top team to have instant answers because you go 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 so there is no moment for them to process 13 different messages they've just heard and come back with a consolidated, considered view. Because you go, go. So you build in lots and lots of breaks into those sessions where they can go for a walk, talk, pee, fat, cigarette, whatever, just to give us time for the system to absorb that, reflect, and come back with a more considered answer. You get so much more quality out of that. And we've also created people with a Twitter mindset now, you know, 240 characters input. Put someone in a session for eight hours, you fried their brains. So you got to respect that. And you've just yeah. got to accept that we haven't really advanced human physiology a great deal uh, in the way that we've advanced tech. Yeah, we can get to human augmentation another time. But so we've got to accept that our basic tech hasn't improved that much. You know, it lasts longer, but the basic functioning hasn't changed. The way the brain processes information hasn't changed in 200 years. Maybe some of the pathways are bigger. But if you work with that, 
then you have you're you're halfway there because you're really working with behavior. So we haven't really talked much about the future because ten percent of what I do now is is helping people think about the future, helping them make sense of it. Ninety five percent is really about well, how do we work with this? How do we deal with emotions, the change? How do we translate that into something real? And it doesn't matter if it doesn't fit what I thought was the vision of exactly what we'd be doing, because I'm not in the organization every day. and I'm not trying to make it work, which right. is one of the reasons why so many digital transformation projects fail, because the consultants envision it. And the organization isn't full of people from that consultancy who think a certain way. They're trained differently. They live differently. And so they can't execute in the same way and you don't get the same outcomes. And so you have to allow people the the freedom to design what they're going to design and operate what they're going to operate with the insights you've given them and give them the courage to do some tough things, give them the permission that they need to give themselves to have ideas that aren't going to work and voice them, to to put out dissenting views, and just to make mistakes. The final analogy I always use is this is like a dance floor. Every business and every individual has a bunch of dance routines. So the marketplace changes. I know how to dance to that. Customers come up with a new requirement. We we know how to dance to that. Energy shop, we know how to dance to that. Economic turned out. But now everything is changing at the same time. So no one knows the right dance steps when we don't even know what the music's going to be. And the music is changing all the time. The only way we can do that, we can't sit on the side and write a business plan for how to dance. You have to get on the dance floor. You have to try stuff. You have to kick people, trip over your own feet, look ugly as hell. The most attractive people in the room are probably not going to come over and want to dance with you for a while. But unless you do that, you don't learn. And it's only when you do it, you start to get confidence that suddenly, you know, you try a few things, you kind of twirl your arms, you, you do things, and suddenly you feel good and you feel like, okay, I've now got this space. And it's exactly the same for organizations. We just need to give ourselves permission to learn, to listen, to adapt, and to do the very human things that are normally the problems that stop us from moving forward as an organization. Well, Rohit, yeah, you've given us sense. a great overview of, uh, of, the, of the human empathy element and, and how you get people to open their minds and, and begin to contemplate these ideas. So that's great. That's practical futurism in effect. Now, Let's talk about far futurism. Let's yeah, let's go full about... futurist, dude. Yeah, full let's, futurist. Okay. Let's so, end the so, show cool with some predictions. <laughs> so let's let's talk about you know you've talked about AGI and uh, you know elements like that, but but looking out over the next fifty years, you know what are going to be these material changes that human society is really going to have to work to adapt at, and and what are those that are really welcome? Um, you know, what do you see as as the big impactors uh, moving out over the next thirty? To 50 years so i think a kind of handy way of thinking about this is the blurring of boundaries the blurring of boundaries between science fantasy and science fiction and reality the blurring of boundaries between the human body and uh what sits outside it the blurring of time boundaries what we thought was 100 years away happening much faster and so when those start to blur we start to get some very interesting possibilities i.e changing the human um uh brain giving us really enhanced capabilities, extending our memory, our processing power, giving us the genetic makeup of other species so we can enhance our hearing or whatever. Those are the kind of things I think are on the table at that level. Mm. With science and tech, we're talking about the potential for AI to basically be running everything, creating everything, managing everything. And then the big challenge for all of us is, well, do we want it? How do we want it to work? Who pays for it? Who gets the money from it? 
Uh, how do we ensure that we still have some purpose and value in society? How we want to decide, define it? And then how do we make sure it's benign in its decision-making and it doesn't compete with other AIs or other AGIs? Uh, it, and it's unlikely that we'll have one running everything. So what could the consequence be of AGIs competing and gaming each other? And what could the human side effects of that be? We have no idea yet because it's so far out. And then uh, the, I say the fun stuff is when you start to look at uh, what science and technology makes possible. So material that can change its property over time, atomically precise manufacturing. So I can manufacture at the atomic level, nanotechnology visions truly realized. Then you start to engineer things like cars that can change their shape when they go around corners, uh, buildings that can change their shape and their heat reflective properties, uh, titanium body parts that will change their shape depending on whether you're walking or running, all of that kind of stuff. And then biological materials that can absorb carbon in the atmosphere that can basically do all the environmental cleanup, but also fundamentally change uh, the way we think about everything. So we know that the experiments have been done. We've been able to store a million books worth of information on the DNA of a single drop of water. I was with Huawei last week and they were saying, I was quite amazed that they told me what they're doing in their research labs. They're working on DNA storage. And they now calculate that you could take all of the information that exists on this planet and store it on one kilogram of DNA. Conversely, it's pretty crazy. Conversely, they reckon within five years or so, we'll get to about a yottabyte of data uh, being generated a day. In order to store that using the best hard drives out there, if you laid them end to the end, they would take us to the moon and back 284 times. So physically impossible to do. There isn't enough space in the planet. So we're going to need radically different science to do all this. And this is some of the stuff that I get very excited about is when we start to solve fascinating challenges that we've created for ourselves, we start to really transform the planet from something we're abusing to something we're enhancing. And we start to say, you have more choice over how you want to live as a human. If you want to live to 150, that's fine, but you take the consequences. If you want to give yourself, you know, bat-like vision and dog-like hearing, that's cool. But let's not have that at the cost of someone else. So we we got some very interesting stuff to be done around ethical, moral frameworks, permissioning in society, who governs it. You know, you have these treatments. When you pitch up to the conventional health service and something's gone wrong, who pays for that? How are we going to deal with it? So I, I think there's so many exciting possibilities. I love the idea of flying cars. I love the idea of you know, deciding when I want to give myself a treatment to, to deal with the niggling injury in the back of my knee or whatever, not having to wait for a healthcare provider. I love the idea of having all those Star Trek technologies in my home. But what I love even more is that there's a bunch of super nerds out there who now think it's possible. Yeah. And there's a bunch of investors, as we were saying earlier, who are really happy to put the cash up, really happy to put the money up to try this stuff. Because when you've got gazillions, then it doesn't matter if you put 20 billion into something. It's an experiment. So that's fascinating. The, the, the key for me is that we don't end up doing all this to the benefit of a very small portion of society. This is really key, isn't it? You know, it has to be inclusive. It has to be a, a, a future that uh, we build for everybody, you know. Um, and th this is what is great about the technology. It makes this possible. Unfortunately, I, you know, we could continue this conversation for another half hour at least or another hour, Rohit. Um, the, the, 
you know, I, I would have loved to dive more more deeply into some of that future tech stuff. Maybe we should do a show just on that future tech stuff, uh, Robert, you know, Bob. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, hey, but uh, um, you've been listening to The Futurists, uh, Rohit Tawa from Fast Future. Thank you for joining us on The Futurists this week. Um, where can people find out more about yourself and about Fast Future? Uh, the easiest place is our website. It's fastfuture.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Uh, and the email is rohit at fastfuture.com. Fantastic. So if you like this episode, um, you know, make sure to check out uh, Rohit, connect with him uh, on, on social media, LinkedIn and so forth. But also make sure to give us a five-star review. Go to uh, iTunes, Podcaster, Stitcher, you know, Spotify, wherever, wherever it is that you download Futurist from and put in a review for us. It helps other people find uh, the podcast and uh, hear our great content as well. But we will be back with more of the Futurists uh, next week. Until then... We'll see you in the future. future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.